0: We're going to look at the Bible together, Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 is where we are. As you're turning there, I want to say something that I've said often, and I still feel it. I don't think that you should play favorites with the Bible. It's all the Word of God. It feels a little wrong to talk about different portions as better than others, and I believe that one day I'm going to see in totality and fullness the way that God has given every word, every little jot, every tittle, every bit of his voice has been an unspeakable gracious gift. I'll see that in total fullness. But for now, it is really difficult not to say things about the eighth chapter of the book of Romans like favorite and chock full of goodness and um, astounding or comforting or worship inspiring or whatever you'd want to say. Romans 8 is that chapter. I know that in the past, at least in our world, for people who teach the Bible consistently, we are very staunchly against what would be called topical preaching. Some people are very against topical preaching because we should let the verses of the Bible lead us to what we want to to talk about. But it's been joked often that for many people, Romans 8 has caused preaching to slow down so drastically that those people end up just preaching topically because you can't get through more than a word or two at a time, and that's the totality of the morning. Now, I hope that's not going to be the case this morning, but we're not going to get through the chapter again. I'll just say that out loud. We're going to read five verses together, and I hope to get through what I believe is going to be the main points of this section, though I can already tell you in the first service I got through the second point, and then I had to middle of a cartoon Batman episode, that thing, and say, come back next week for the end. And I haven't done that in a long time. So we'll see where we get this morning. But please look at Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 26 with me. And I know that that's uh, quite the intro to a text, but I hope that you find the goodness and the wonder that I'm talking about as we read this. This is the 26th verse of Romans chapter 8. I'm going to go down through verse 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The last word we read, at least for this particular section of Romans chapter 8, is the word glorified. The idea that if you're in Christ, that you and I have a future that can only truly be spoken of as glorious. I don't know how often you throw around the word glory or glorious, but it's not a very normal word. Something's got to kind of move a person to say, what was it like? Glorious. And yet God says here, and what Paul's trying to convince you of is that you are on a path to that kind of life eternally if you're in Christ. Glory is the goal. Glory is the end destination. That is amazing. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, all working, leveraging, pressing toward one certain future for you in Christ. And the word that gets labeled over the top of it is glory. Now that's a heavy word. Glory describes the weight of something, the value of it, the, the shimmer and the shine of something, the esteem we might give to something. And if you're in Christ, Romans chapter 8, verse 30, ends up by saying, after all that God is doing throughout history, and there's a lot here, but all that he's doing, that's the end goal. Now, that's the kind of thing you ought to sit and think about for a while. And no matter what path you've taken so far, that in Christ, what God is weaving for you is an end destination of utter and complete glory. How am I supposed to describe this? How do I convince you that that's a big deal? It's so stupefying and big that in some way there's an impulse in me to say, don't say too much. What God has done in Christ, that's what the book of Romans is about, has restored the possibility, not only the possibility, but for those who are in Jesus, the certainty that you will be restored to be more of what you were designed to be than you had ever thought possible. Now, let me back up and describe that. I just said something that sounds very sort of uh, self-helpy. That in Christ, you are going to be able to be more of what you were designed to be than you ever thought possible. Here's what I mean. A number of chapters ago, in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, we came across a statement that's very well known. If I say Romans 3.23 to you, you probably know what it is, right? For all have sinned, and everyone knows that. That's an important concept. We need to confess our sin. But it's the next phrase that I'm getting here, and it's, it, I'm reminded by it. I'm stirred by this phrase in Romans 3 because of this concept in verse 30, glorified. It says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I want to pause for a moment and just sort of dive into the churchiness of that phrase. And it's got a bunch of church words in there, glory and God. and I mean, it sounds like it could be very easy to just fly past it. But here's what Romans 3 is saying, that because of our sin, because of Adam's sin, creation being subjected to futility because of your personal sin, what you're accountable for, because of the sin of others against you, that we have been robbed of, we are unable to live into or to have the kind of destination that God designed for all of those whom he set his image on. What we're doing down here in our sin is we're slopping around in muck and dragging the image of God through an entire lifetime that just keeps falling short of what his design for worshiping eternal soul, breath of life kind of creatures should have. That's what Romans 3 says. The consequences of the fall is that we cannot and have not become what God longed for us to be and to become. Except for what he's done in Jesus Christ. That would be the end. Except for God. But God, there's more to say after all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In fact, there's chapter after chapter to say. You could just keep turning the pages and now we're getting to the end of Romans 8, And Paul is saying, don't you see what God is doing? God the Father and all of his ruling and God the Son and all of his working and coming on our our behalf. And God the Spirit indwelling us. All of it is being leveraged for us to be restored to the place that God had us. And so if I had to give a title to what I want to talk about this morning or what I think that these sections getting through, is I would say that we're on this path to glory and it's an undergirded glory. That's the words I'm going to use. Undergirded glory. And it just struck me that it might be where girdle comes from, the idea. Undergirded. Undergirded glory. I watched a short YouTube video the other day. Isn't it funny, the 21st century? <laughs> you just see anything on YouTube. I heard someone describe how much danger you can get into because you think you know more than you know because you watched a YouTube video. And if that is not true in my life, I don't know what is. Anyway, so about this YouTube video I watched. It was a short video on the way that the Roman Empire created roads. And this is revolutionary. It allowed them to move armies quickly and to have trade that was previously unthinkable. And it was just a short little video that showed the things they had in mind because they needed to create a stable road pushed off as many dangers as possible, so that if you were on this road, you knew you weren't going to fall into pitholes or potholes or be attacked, there weren't blind spots. In other words, you could feel, and if you traveled on this road, you felt more stable than any other place in the known world. It was a Roman road. And as I watched it, I thought through about all the terrible roads that I'm, I've driven on. not pointing any fingers, but Louisiana... Has a terrible road sometimes. I'm just driving. I think my car is going to break apart right now. I just thought, it's funny. We're still building roads, and I don't know that we have it nailed yet. Because this world is punishing. It just takes abuse, and you can often feel unstable. And what I'm going to try to convince you of, what I think Paul is trying to say in the end of this, is that you have been given in Christ a path toward glory, that is the most stable path in the universe. That God is doing everything he can to undergird you so that as you are in Christ, you're being carried along to ultimate and eternal glory. And when you feel unstable, which we all do at times, when you feel unstable, there's evidence here in Romans 8 that you're going to be undergirded. You're going to be stabilized. God is doing everything he can to make sure that this path delivers you. To the destination, and so what is being done? How is God moving? What is He leveraging so that we have undergirded an undergirded path to glory, not just an unstable glory? i to talk about the Spirit of God. So, Spirit will be one big category. What is the Spirit doing to undergird? Second, the providence of God. What does it mean that God rules the universe? So, His providence is undergirding our path to glory, and then finally. The plan of God or the plan of redemption is evidence of us having a path to glory. It's that last one that we'll have to see and maybe come back to next week. But can we start with the Spirit of God? Did you read or did you note what it says? It says, likewise, in verse 26, the Spirit, there's a capital S Spirit, the Holy Spirit, God himself who's indwelling us, likewise, well, what does likewise mean? Well, likewise, meaning it's more evidence that we're solid and can be sure we can have hope. The verse before it said that we have hope for what we don't see, that we're able to wait with patience. And some of you say, I don't know. I feel very impatient. Don't you know the suffering of life? Don't you know the sin that affects me? Don't you know the anxieties and insecurities I have because of my history or whatever has been going on? And he says, well, let me give you more confidence on this path. The Holy Spirit helps us. In our weakness. When you're going through life, you have God himself indwelling you who rushes to your aid to help you when when you're weak. Now, this indicates a couple of things. First of all, it should be a welcome thing that we admit our weakness. And I will just tell you that is the hardest thing in the world for me. I don't want to admit weakness. It's as though I didn't read the Bible correctly. I thought it said, and the Spirit of God is embarrassed of weak people and goes away from them because they are weak. I think if you watched my life sometimes, that's what you would imagine. I don't want to confess my problems. I don't want to say when I'm feeling feeling insecure. I don't want to face or confront sin. And yet... God Himself has instituted this, pla- this plan, this path, where He is the person who rushes to us exactly in our weakness. God is on call. He's indwelling you, and He's on call for the moments when you feel most unstable. When you cry out in weakness, God rushes. The Spirit rushes to your aid. That is amazing. You might say to yourself, God is big and powerful and he's got a lot going on. How could he possibly think about me? It's more than just thinking about you. He indwells you. And you can have every confidence that it's in your darkest moment, your saddest moment, your most difficult moment, that the Spirit activates in such a way that he rushes to your aid. This should be an invitation to us to no longer pretend that we're strong, but to admit the reality of our weakness. I told someone one time, sometimes I can be convinced to admit my weakness as long as it seems like I'm being strong in the way that I'm confessing my weakness. Well, sure, that guy confessed weakness, but look how strong he is in the way he's handling it. And yet... The Holy Spirit knows better, rushes to us exactly in the moment. You're on this path, you're going on your way to your destination. God is not ashamed of you, He doesn't wish that you were somehow a better child. He's not embarrassed, He's not giving you a performance review, He's not going to leave the caravan. When he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, it means even in the moments of weakness, so much so that I'm going to indwell you every step of the way. How can you be sure that you're going to end up in the destination that God is designing for you? Well, he himself rushes to your aid in your worst moments. He goes on and describes a particular kind of weakness. Even a spiritual one. I can think of a lot of weaknesses, but even a spiritual one. He says, we do not know what to pray for as we ought. And if that isn't just about the truest statement of all time. I thought about the ways that I don't often know how to pray. I thought, well, the first thing is that I don't pray with regularity enough. Just faithfulness in prayer. I think that's true. I don't often know how to pray. Someone once said, If you ask the question, why don't you pray? The simplest answer is because you think you can do it. And I just am not consistent enough in prayer because I am consistent enough in pride to think I got most of my life handled. And I'll let God know if something comes up where I need his consulting. And let me tell you, when I confess that, I realize and I agree with the Bible that I don't know how to pray as I ought. And then I think to myself, The other way that I don't know how to pray as I ought is that I don't pray in fullness. And by that I mean I don't pray the kind of bold prayers that a child to a father would actually pray if he knew the welcome. I'm hesitant. I caveat things. I speak with God as though I'm negotiating as an equal partner. And I think to myself, One day in the future when I see my utter and complete dependence on God, and one day in the future when I recognize his complete and full affection and love as a father, I'm going to look back and I'm going to say, boy, I should have prayed with so much more excitement and joy and fervor. But instead, I just left it unsaid. So I think to myself, yes, not only in faithfulness or regularity, but I don't know how to pray in the fullness that I ought to as a child of God who has all things. Then I think to myself, Man, I don't pray with a lot of faith sometimes. You ever been in the middle of the prayer, smack dab in the middle of the prayer, and then you have to confess that you don't even believe what you're praying? Like you're in the middle of it, and I just think, well, this one's not going to work. <laughs> I, just, I just know that right off. I don't even believe it right now. And then you feel bad about it, so you kind of pause, and you're like, well, I better regroup and get more spiritual before I start praying again. So you kind of deal with that, and then you go back, and you're thinking like, okay, that was a little better. Maybe he's convinced you get why the disciples sometimes just finally said, okay, we admit it. We believe, but help our unbelief. I don't know what to do here. The reality is I don't know how to pray as I ought because I don't pray in faith sometimes. And then I think this word is, if we want to get really particular about it, it says we don't know what to pray for. And I think, well, that is the absolute truth. You ever been in a spot where you don't even know what to pray? Well, just remember that feeling, and it's probably more often the reality of your prayers than you're willing to see. I had a sweet moment with our youngest a couple of weeks ago. He was describing something that he prayed for. It was a good prayer, something he wanted. And then uh, out of the blue, he started telling us, and Recollecting how he didn't get the thing that he wanted he prayed for, but he'd come to the conclusion that there were things that God was even keeping him from. And he realized, looking back, that it was kind of a good thing that God didn't answer that prayer. And he was, he was seeing some things that he was happy for. So not only was I excited that my child was knowing that he could go to God to pray, and not only was I excited that he was reflecting on the fact that God can know things that he doesn't know, but then he summed it up by saying, you know, sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. So remember when you're talking to the man upstairs. Anybody? (laughs) It's a Garth Brooks song. And you can just sense, I hope, my delight to think not only is there spiritual life here and knowing you can go in weakness and not only is there a recognition that God's sovereign sometimes and he works in ways we don't really know so we should be humble, but then he also can tie it to the most delightful, cheesiest of cultural references. But more than that, I think to myself, oh yeah, yeah, I've been there. I know what that's like. Sometimes I don't pray, or even in my praying, I basically say to God, I've got this figured out, so if you could just solve or just accomplish my to-do list, please, that would be great. But the reality is, is we often have misaligned priorities. We have disordered desires. Things that seem big to us are ultimately small. Things that we missed were the most important aspect. We just don't often know how or what to pray for. I guess that's what Romans 8 seems to tell us. We don't know what to pray for as we ought. So what happens in those moments? Have you been in that spot before? What happens in the moments when you don't have words and all the words that you do come up with aren't the right ones? The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. You have a built-in translator. You have a built-in ambassador indwelling you that brings your desires and your needs, your actual needs, brings them to the Father consistently when you cannot... That is an amazing statement. I've had people say to me before, it must be nice to, be, to, to feel like you have words. Because I know that sometimes people with you know, new friends or new situations or around a dinner or in a work environment or something, they, they often say, well, I feel things deeply, but then my mouth doesn't cooperate and I don't know exactly how to, how to express it. And Usually what I think in those moments is, Well, actually, have you ever read what the Bible says about people who have a lot of words? It's kind of a dangerous thing. So you might be better off, first of all. You might be better off. And secondarily, I would want to encourage them and say, well, you should be comforted by the fact that God not only sees and knows your heart and your mind when you can't express it, but he's not waiting around to be impressed by your words. It's not a performance review. And more than that, he himself indwells you to translate the deepest desires and needs and weakness that you have, so that He not only hears you, but that He can answer and move on your behalf. Do you see the way that God has leveraged Himself to keep you on the path to glory? What's amazing is that the Spirit of God, it says, Himself intercedes for us, translates and speaks. I get the impression here that there is ongoing, continued intercession, standing in the gap, forgiveness for the things that I say wrong, and there is an adding of the things that I were left unsaid. That's what the Spirit does for you. Groaning's too deep for words. We have an advocate. This is in addition to what we've already learned in the book of Romans, and that is that the Son of God himself is now seated at the right hand of the Father on high, and he ever lives to intercede for you you feel unstable? Do you feel like you might not make it? Do you feel like you're trying to perform and trying to see if God's going to be for you? I'm going to step ahead, skip ahead a little bit, but it's why the end of this chapter, by the end of it, Paul just like launches himself out and just says, what could be against us? Nothing. And God himself is interceding on your behalf. So we should be grateful. We should be aware of and we should be worshiping God. God the Holy Spirit, for his ministry in our life. You're undergirded. Second, I said that I was going to talk about the word providence, and that's where we get to, if Romans 3.23 is the most well-known verse of the book of Romans, then I'm guessing this is number two. Let me just read it again so you get it, and I'll try to describe what I mean by providence. It says this in verse 28 of Romans chapter 8, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. That is amazing. You might say to yourself, well, this world's a pretty crazy place, and I don't know if you know my story, so you go back and you try to parse it out, and you discover how many things fit into the phrase all things, just about all of them. That is unbelievable. That was borderline heresy to say just about all of them. All of them. Like I knew a secret part that wasn't in there. All the things fit in all the things that God is working together for good. How is that possible except that we are connected to and we are being undergirded and brought along by the ruler of the universe, who has ordained and set in motion all things according to his good pleasure. God who has all knowledge, all power, who is perfectly and utterly holy. That God is now leveraged on your behalf in Jesus Christ. This is an astounding statement. Let the cross-stitching begin. Just put this everywhere. Paul wants us to feel comfortable when we're uncomfortable, to feel stable when we feel unstable, that we will make it to the destination because God who can and has ordered all things is working for you. Amazing. Let me say something at the outset because this could get wonky. We make all things wonky. This could get wonky. The text does not say... And we know that for those who love God, all things are good. That's a kind of weird, happy, clappy Christianity that's not real. All things are not good. That's not what the Bible says. It doesn't say all things are good. But God works all things for good. And this is very important because people can see straight through that kind of fake, shallow Christianity that's got no answer for real suffering. In fact, the whole verse is neutered if you try to make it out to be, all things are good, the message of the gospel is, don't worry, be happy. Now, there's some worrisome things in the world. Christians are the ones who can say, darkness is as dark as you would imagine it. Evil is really evil. Death is the worst. Christians, of all people, have to say that, and that's what gives this verse its wonder. It's wonder. If you say that all things are good, then the verse makes no sense and it's not even worth trusting. Basically, our saying is, and we know that all good things work for good. And then you just say, duh. But what wonder is behind a phrase like this that the God of the universe working on your behalf can take all things, yes, even suffering, yes, even evil, done by you and done against you, yes, even the fallenness of the world, yes, out-of-control viruses, and yes, cancer, and yes, death itself, that these things somehow in God's providence, that we will be so stable eternally in Christ, we'll look back and we'll see that God had worked good. I mean, is this mind-boggling enough And this is an invitation. Paul's not dumb. He knows that your life's not been perfect. He knows that you are going to be tempted to fill in the gaps. Yeah, but what about? I mean, I have some whatabouts. Do you have a few whatabouts to throw at this verse? I think we all do. And I would invite you to a couple of things. First, do not believe the false promise that understanding and reasoning and getting an answer to why is what's necessary before you can trust that God is going to work good. There are a whole lot of things thrown at this verse that we will never understand in this life. We will never understand it. Thankfully, that's not what unlocks the work of God. It does not say, and for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, as long as you understand what he's doing, then God works on your behalf. Now God works in ways that we can never see, and even if we tried, it would be beyond us. So here's my encouragement. Don't wait to throw your whys at God until you understand, because you will, in some instances, never understand. Secondarily, think about the ways that this has been demonstrated in real life. We all have seen ways... Where something has taken place that was totally understandable, that was even perhaps bad on its face, and somehow because God is more wise and bigger, it turns out for good. Let me give you one example, Genesis chapter 50. We talked through Genesis a couple of years ago. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph says of his brothers, if you know the story, he is mocked, hated, abandoned, left for dead. Then they go back and they say, ah, it'd be better if we profited or we should sell him off. He's sold into slavery. Then his father believes that he's dead and mourns over him for decades. Summary statement of all these things, Genesis 50 verse 20, as for you, you meant meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. The story of the life of Joseph, you can't tell the story of the Bible without recognizing there will be some things that are objectively bad and somehow God can work good. Maybe I'll bring up the most obvious and the biggest example in the history of the universe, the death of Jesus Christ himself. Was it good that Jesus was murdered? You may say to yourself, I think he's trying to trap me. Yes, I'm trying to trap you. No, it was terrible. It was our sins that pierced him. It was the fallenness of the world, the rebellion of the world that caused the wrath of God to fall unspeakably on his own son, It's a horrific thing. And at the same time, do you not see God working glory and good in the death of His Son? And so though God has not spoken perhaps specifically and given you a why to all evil or all suffering in the world, He has cosmically spoken. In the death of his own son, in the coming of Jesus, in the drawing near to a fallen and suffering world, he has drawn near enough and it answered in a big enough way that given time and eternity future, all things will be wrapped up for good and for our glory, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. In a very significant way, the answer to evil and suffering in the world from God is the person of Jesus so I guess I would summarize it that you are undergirded by the providence of God who not only can but has ordered all things and is working on your behalf if that doesn't get you stabilized a little bit I don't know what will doesn't take away the sting you can still call evil things evil But you can have a hope that is as sturdy as God himself. Now, I told you that there's a further undergirding on this path to glory, and that is the plan of God in redemption. And right following this providence of God that he can order all things, we have an example of how he orders all things. Verse 29 says, Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And then summary in verse 30, Those whom he predestined, he called those whom he called justified, those justified glorified. And I just want to point out something before I tell you that I have two full pages that we're not going to get to and I'm going to have to come back. Yesterday I told myself so many times, oh, I think I'll be able to skate through the first couple parts and the last thing's really the thing. I didn't skate very well. And I didn't want to. Let me just introduce this by saying a couple things. The next four to six weeks or so, coming through the end of Romans 8 and then into Romans 9. Some of you may not be aware of this, and some of the rest of you are too aware of this, but the theme of God's sovereignty and his plan and words like predestination, they're going to come up a lot. Let me say from the outset that it is not a litmus test for belonging that you are confused about this in only certain ways. And you see, I say that intentionally people say, what's your understanding of X, Y, Z? Really, the question is, where are you leaving the confusion? And I know that for many of us in this room, we're confused about these things in different ways. It's not a litmus test for belonging to Christ. And God forbid if we ever make our understanding of this the way that we welcome people or not. So I want to say that at the start. And I want to invite you to consider and to learn the plain text of Scripture about what it says about these things And then we'll talk about proper mystery and confusion in it. But second, something you maybe have not thought about very often. Suppose you do feel unstable in life. Suppose you do think to yourself, it's never been more uncertain. I just moved. I'm not sure if this job is right. Or I just started dating this girl. I just don't know if this is right. Or this guy, I'm just not really positive my parents said this. Or this job, or this career, or this sin, or this addiction, or whatever it is. Maybe you're feeling unstable in life. And if I were to say to you this morning, oh, let me tell you, the balm of God is coming your way. I'm going to talk to you about the indwelling spirit who intercedes for you and gives you groanings when you don't have them, and you'd say, oh, yes, the comfort. And then I'd say, let me tell you about a God who's in charge of all things, who can work all things together for good, and he is on your side, he's working for you. And you'd say, Ah, oh, yes, the comfort. God is working. And then if you said, I'm very unstable, and I just don't know what to do, and I need clarity. And then I said, let me tell you what's going to bring clarity, Predestination. Do you see where I went astray? Or you might think I went astray. But Paul's not going astray here. You see, there must be, there must be a little bit of an invitation, maybe some treasure to find here, of Paul saying, no, no, no. If you want to see the certainty of God leveraging Himself in totality for you to end up on the path to glory, then you need to understand what He's been doing in the plan of redemption. He's been working through the coming of His Son, and then by His Spirit, He's been calling us to Himself in particular ways. And the goal is not to be right in a certain way, or not to fight in a certain way, or not to get a big theological head in a certain way. But the goal in studying this, this is what Paul's saying, the goal in studying this is to bring us a kind of confidence that will never waver or be shaken if we're in Christ. So I, even as I pause and say, we have a lot to talk about, I want to invite you to see these things as cause for worship. Let's engage hearts first and foremost, even as we engage brains. And that ultimately we will have succeeded if our estimation of God and the work that he's done in his son grows in our sight and our estimation of self and our strength starts to dim. So there's just so much here. You see why people slow down? I mean, just like, what a chapter. So I'm going to slow down. And I wonder if you wouldn't pray with me. Let's pray.